Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. He tries to be funny. Obnoxious. It really is obnoxious. You're on the drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Glad to have you on a Monday drive where without question the game of the weekend was North Carolina's overtime win against Baylor. And that's saying something. Because I thought Duke-Michigan State, which we'll get to in just a bit, was very good, as was Arizona-TCU late last night, and so on and so forth. Here's what I found most compelling about Carolina-Baylor. We got to see how powerful and how limited this Tar Heel team could be in the same game. How often is that the case? Usually, it's Jekyll or Hyde. One or the other. It's Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. Not both. After Saturday, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say North Carolina, when it's right, when it's at its best, there's no starting five in America playing better than theirs is right now. They were nicknamed the Iron Five after playing every minute of the second half in Cameron. That legacy of the Iron Five only grew when they ran Baylor off the floor. They were embarrassing Baylor. Remember, these are the defending champs. They were a one seed. And North Carolina's up big in the first half. They're up 27 points in the second half. So that was North Carolina at their best, at their peak power. Then we saw how limited they can be. When Brady Manick was unjustly tossed from the game. When that happened, North Carolina suddenly didn't look like a tournament team. They don't have depth. Some of that's Hubert's fault. Not playing Dontre Styles or DeMarco Dunn during the year. I have no idea where Kerwin Walton has been, why he's fallen off the face of the planet, Justin McCoy, so on. Again, et cetera. You know that story. We've covered it. Some of that's Hubert's fault. Most of it isn't. They had a thin rotation even when Dawson Garcia and Anthony Harris were on the team. Before Harris became ineligible, or let's just say ruled out. I think that's the way they framed it. And Dawson Garcia left the team under ominous circumstances surrounding an illness in his family. The rotation's thin. North Carolina doesn't have a lot of depth. So when Manic left the game, what looked like was going to be one of the greatest blowouts of a number one seed pre-Final Four looked like it was about to turn into perhaps the greatest collapse in the history of the tournament. Not only are you up 27 points, you're up 27 points, and you're approaching the halfway mark of the second half. You lose a 25-point lead almost immediately. You look like you've never seen pressure before, and you're throwing the ball. You're struggling to inbound it. It was getting really scary really fast just because they lost one guy. That speaks to a lack of depth. I was most impressed, though, with how North Carolina responded to that, though. The most impressive stretch wasn't how they got up 27 points. No, it was an overtime finding a way to win because I didn't think they had any shot. Dontres Styles hit the most important shot of the season for North Carolina. Listen to what I just said. I'll say it again. Dontres Styles hit the most important shot for Carolina basketball in a round of 32 win over a number one seed. No Caleb Love, no Brady Manick, Love fouling out. 
and you have all that pressure of being up 27, and your season's about to end potentially, and you're facing a team that has more talent than you do, and you bounce back. And who is the guy who delivered at every turn? R.J. Davis. Career-high 30 points, and with one minute left to go, he made it a six-point game, hitting an and-one to put away the Bears. This was R.J. after the game talking about what drove him and how he found the energy and the mental toughness to finish off Baylor, given all that had transpired. Didn't want to go home. I mean, there was no time to be tired. Um, it was going to overtime. I knew it was at stake, and we all wanted to win. We wanted to get to the next round. So, you know, at that point, I wasn't even tired. I had a mindset of just, you know, gathering my teammates together and um, regrouping and telling them to obtain their uh, composure and let's get this win. Luke Nad Carney in Robert's place today, producing today's show, 336-777-1600. The phone number if you want in on Twitter at WSJS Sports. Mark in Greensboro on the line once in. Mark, I thought this was the most powerful Carolina can look and also the most limited they can look without Brady in the lineup, removing one piece of that iron five. What do you think? No, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think the, the, the issue I have is the, the officials take. I feel like, I feel like in this case, like, do you feel like Chris Spatola, you know, guy that you found on your show, is a reasonable guy? Yes, Chris Spatola. He, is. he was in Greenville, South Carolina, and was an assistant coach for Coach K and his it's resume, now working for ESPN. And for those who don't know what my, offici- my officiating take is, I haven't so much put this so much on social media, but it's essentially that my golden rule when it comes to refs, do not unnecessarily insert yourself into the result. They did. Manic was unjustly thrown out of that game. For that reason, I don't think the officials did a good job. But other than that, I think any qualms people had about the, the officials were more to do with how often they were blowing whistles versus the calls actually being inaccurate or them being incompetent. I felt that uh, the mob mentality of it was a bit unsettling. I don't think either side got an unfair whistle, but I felt that one mistake that they made to throw Manic out, that was them breaking the rule. They unnecessarily inserted themselves. Well, I I get that. And I I also feel like you're misinterpreting what... uh, That wasn't all Carolina fans. I am not a Carolina fan. I have no affiliation to Carolina. I've not rooted for them ever. So what's your take on the referees? Like, what is your opinion? My my point is, is like when I look at my timeline and I have lifelong Duke fans going, wow, Carolina's getting hosed. That's how you know that it wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction from the Carolina faithful. I mean, NC, I had an NC State fan who literally would rather uh, piss on a a jersey than go to a Carolina game. Okay, I get it. There are people that, but that's also people that follow along with what the national media say. When Matt Norlander is saying it and others are saying it, it's so easy to just follow in line and say all these things without pointing to anything specific. So rather than just cite state fans and Duke fans, tell me why you thought the officials didn't do a good job. Because you and I both have gone to enough games where you start to see the whistles turn, and they don't turn in the way that you you can just point to, hey, it was 11 fouls to 10 at the end of the game. There were one point that's been thrown about is, yeah, 10 straight fouls in Carolina without anything going against Baylor. The thing that I don't like is all of a sudden the refs just go, 
okay, so this team is going to press and kind of bring pressure the entire rest of the game. Now the fouls that they were calling earlier in the game when Baylor wasn't as aggressive, but Carolina was getting when they were getting bumps on closeouts or when R.J. Davis was going to the basket and getting hit. Now none of those calls are existing. So, yes, do the players have to adjust? 100%. But that's the frustration I think that fans have watching the game with these officials is the consistency just flips. It's just all of a sudden it's here and then it goes there. It has nothing to do with people are getting cheated. Now, my point about Chris, Chris, Chris Patola is that he feels, he said on the radio today, that that crew shouldn't be allowed to officiate another game in the NCAA tournament. Now, he's a reasonable guy. He's not a mob mentality guy. That's why I asked that first question. And he feels like that, that performance from those referees should negate them from, again, going forward. The same thing happened in the playoffs with the Cincinnati and the Tennessee game. Those refs weren't allowed to be in the, in the playoffs again. They were kicked out. So I feel, I feel the same way. I, I'm just saying I think you simplify it by saying, oh, don't, don't blame it all on the refs. No one's blaming it all on the refs. But it's a huge part of that game that should not have happened because those refs inserted themselves, not only just with the manic ejection. Appreciate the call, Mark. You actually remind me of something that's an interesting analogy. And I actually don't have an issue if they don't officiate another game. This isn't me saying they did a good job. They did a bad job because they inserted themselves in the game. We're kind of saying the same thing here. I, I have no issue if they don't work another game because they broke that rule. And that's a rule that's hard to break sometimes. And they went out of their way to do it. So I don't have an issue if they don't work another game. I don't think they did a good job. But I'm being a little bit more specific about it than some are being pretending some of these other calls. And I'm not saying you're doing this, Mark, specifically. But others are trying to pinpoint other calls that I personally didn't have any issue with as means to say that this crew's incompetent when really it all goes back to that manic call. That's the way that I feel. The analogy I thought of, do you ever play, had you played in 64 before, Mario Kart? Oh, absolutely. I think what Mark's arguing is it's kind of like you're behind in the race and you get those items that you get when you hit like barrels and things of that nature. What's the, the word I'm looking the for? The blue shell? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. You get, it's just yeah, part the power, of the code. The you get, yeah. you get better items when you're behind in the race than when you're leading the race (laughs) and i guess what he's suggesting is and i think it's fair that maybe you got a more favorable whistle because you're down 25 to 27 maybe brady manic doesn't get tossed from the game if it's a one-point game in the final minute than if you're up 25 but we'll never really know the answer to that on Twitter at WSJS Sports 336-777-1600 if you want to continue chiming in. When Jim Nance joined our show a few months ago, he told us he was almost certain he and his crew would be wherever Coach K and Duke were for the NCAA tournament. And surely enough, it's Nance, it's Raff, it's Grant Hill in Greenville, South Carolina. And I bet since that conversation we had, Nance had been thinking, hmm, what canned line can I use for my final call for K's last year? Yesterday, he went with, the music is still playing for Coach K's last dance, which is pretty good. But I bet you he didn't have that line prepared with about five minutes to go. At that point, Duke was following the script to a T that would have their season end in Greenville. I'm incredibly cr- proud of my guys. This is a, uh, this was a, you guys were terrific, man. I'm so 
I'm really proud to be your coach. You know, that it had nothing to do with coaching in those last four or five minutes. It all had to do with heart and togetherness. And uh, they followed their hearts, and God bless them. Uh, you know, we're in the Sweet 16. Yeah, that's Coach K being emotional. But the reason he was emotional wasn't because they followed the script and got eliminated, falling short of the Sweet 16. No, he was proud because what transpired after that, the script completely flipped. I thought they were cooked. It was 60, it was 70-65 Sparty, five left to go, and Michigan State was on a 9-0 run, and the body language was bad for Duke. It was similar to what I saw up close when North Carolina was up on Duke in the final minutes, Coach K's last game at Cameron, where the pressure just seemed like it was too great for them, and they wilted. I felt something similar happened when Virginia Tech ran away with it late against Duke in the ACC championship game. And this is a single elimination tournament. And Michigan State has older guys. They have a lot of talent. I thought they were going to win the game. And Michigan State, gosh, how many years has the recipe to beat Duke in the tournament been? Hit threes and don't turn over the ball. That's kind of what it is. And they hit 50% of their threes, 22 attempts. And on top of that, they had seven turnovers. They did their part. It looked like it was going to be a Michigan State win. But what followed, leading to that emotional answer by Kay, was the greatest collective display of resolve we've seen from this Duke team all year long. And every guy had a hand in making it happen. It wasn't one guy taking over like R.J. Davis with the Tar Heels. No, it was Mark Williams grabbing a big rebound and hitting free throws. Underrated free throw shooter Mark Williams. Wendell Moore getting the stop. Michigan State couldn't keep Paulo Boncaro and Jeremy Roach out of the paint. Could it keep Trevor Keels there? And Keels made some big defensive plays too coming off the bench. And then it was Keels hitting the most important shot of the game. He might have been the most important Blue Devil down the stretch of this season. But the big reason why I think Kay was as, most, as emotional as he was when he said that was because I think Kay retired. Kay thought about retiring a year ago. But one of the things that drew him back to Duke was this tournament. Having moments in this tournament. It's crazy to think because of the pandemic and Duke last year not being good and there being a lot of extenuating circumstances with that too. Duke hasn't played in an NCAA tournament game in three years since Zion Williamson was on the roster. So Coach K, when he says after the game, man, I'm 75. How lucky am I to have a moment like that? I've coached 42 years, and this is one of the greatest five-minute stretches at the end of a game for us to close things out. What a moment against Tom Izzo, against Michigan State, to do that in this tournament. How lucky am I to get to experience that one more time, to get to do that? That's, that's I think, a big part of the reason why he wanted to come back. His career is going to be defined by what he did in March, and the numbers are staggering. He's won 99 NCAA tournament games. The next closest is Jim Beheim with 62. To put that in perspective, for Jim Beheim to catch Coach K, he'd have to win six straight national championships and win one more to tie Coach K's mark right now. It's unbelievable. He's won five national championships. He's been at Duke for 42 years. He's made 26 Sweet 16s. Do I have that right? 22 Sweet 16s? I don't know what the exact number is, but it's over 20. It's remarkable. The numbers that 
he's produced in this tournament. So the thought that he would retire without his last game being in the tournament that's defined his career, it's unfathomable. 26 Sweet 16. Thank you. Thank you. That's over 65% of the the seasons he's had at Duke. They've made the Sweet 16. Meanwhile, Elon and High Point, they're just hoping to get into the tournament one time ever. They're one of the few teams in D1 that have never been to the tournament. East Carolina, I went to, I'm a pirate. They haven't been to the tournament since 1993. Duke's under Coach K has been to 26 Sweet 16s. <laughs> it's amazing. I, we didn't even call it the Sweet 16 until 85 when they expanded it to 64. So you start thinking about it. 26. Okay, well, that takes us back to like 19. 19- 96, it was only 11 years, 11 years since 85, that Duke's not a part of that? Unbelievable. You are listening to WSGS, Winston-Salem, and Greensboro, WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up WSJS Sports. Okay. lot to do. We got Brian Geisiger who's going to join us at 530. We're a few minutes past 5 o'clock. Make sure you're subscribed to the Best of Podcasts. Search the Drive with Josh Graham on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. We still have another pair of Roddy Carrington tickets that we're going to give away on tomorrow's show. Make sure you're listening for that. Right now, we get to the five things at five. It's time for the five things at five. All right, people, take five. Brought to you by Precision Garage Door, where their five things are. Garage door and opener repair and replacement. Same day service. Free new door estimates. Weekend and evening appointments at no extra charge. And calls answered 24-7. Here are the top five stories trending now. Brought to you by our friends at Precision Garage Door. Online, precisiondoornc.com. Pay them a visit. It's easy. You could schedule an appointment online or... You can see them in person. Give them a call. There are plenty of options to get you set up and to get your garage door tuned up. As things get warmer, you know, I, I see more and more folks going into their garage doing things. And my, you want to make sure everything's working well in there. Is just something I think most people can relate to. Great sponsor of the program, Precision Garage Door, and we got the five things of five and a lot of things to do. So let's get to it. Number five. A women's basketball update from Reynolds Coliseum. NC State at halftime leads K-State 43-27. to Alyssa Kinane got in foul trouble with a couple of fouls in the first three or four minutes of the game. Didn't matter. She didn't score a point in the first quarter, yet NC State was still leading after one. And now they're leading at halftime by 16. This is a true national title contender. And K-State, the nine seed, probably, I'd imagine, not going to get inch much closer in this one, assuming Kinane is able to play more minutes. Uh, Jones has nine points and five rebounds, three assists as well. Reina Perez is just a monster. Kayla Jones and Reina Perez, a deep team. Camille Hobby uh, had a acrobatic layup in the first half as well. Keeping an eye on this close on this one, but NC State probably going to run away with it. Later on tonight, North Carolina in action against Arizona. That's a 5-4 matchup, 10 o'clock, as the Tar Heels have to go on the road to win and advance to the Sweet 16. Number four. Is today the trade deadline in the National Hockey League? Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, I'm seeing... 
a ton of trade notes. Yeah, today at 3 o'clock was the NHL trade deadline, and the Carolina Hurricanes active today. Jesperi Kakaniemi nailed it. Eight-year contract extension today for Kakaniemi. Young player involved with that controversy to pull him away in the offer sheet with the Montreal Canadiens. Max Domi, he is a Carolina Hurricane now, according to Pierre Lebrun. That happened right before the deadline hit. He was a 28-goal scorer not too long ago. We'll see where he slots in once things get ironed through and you figure out where he could fit in onto a team that expects to be a Stanley Cup contender. So they lock up Kake Niemi. They bring in another scorer in Max Domi, who's had some problems being available. That's what the Canes have done at the deadline today. Number three. The Charlotte Hornets are going for five in a row tonight. They've got the New Orleans Pelicans. This game's in Charlotte. Don't look now. Charlotte, a couple games over 500. But they're one game over 500. And they're a game back at the Brooklyn Nets for number eight in the Eastern Conference standings. This is what's kind of interesting about it, though. Wouldn't you want to set it up that you play, if you were to play Brooklyn in a play-in situation, you do not play in Charlotte, but instead in Brooklyn, so that way you don't have to worry about Kyrie Irving? I was going to say, home court advantage might not be so much of one for the Nets if, if that comes to pass. Yeah, so if you're Charlotte, yeah, I don't mind being the nine seed. So that way we could play the 10. And if we lose, well, then we got Kyrie, but the game's going to be in Brooklyn. And Kyrie's probably, at that time, not going to be able to play. Just a interesting hypothetical in the way of gamesmanship. Something to look at. Number two. We've got a lot of NFC South quarterback notes. We got video of the Carolina Panthers at Kenny Pickett's Pro Day, examining his hands. Like, did you see this video, Luke, where you got Fitterer and Ben McAdoo just staring at his hand as holding if, a football? As if they've never seen a pair of human hands Ooh. before. <laughs> Not holding them with laces? That's interesting. So the entire Panthers brass is there. The Colts, they traded for Matt Ryan, which means Matt Ryan's no longer in the NFC South. Marcus Mariota just signed to a two-year deal in Atlanta to replace Matt Ryan. Panther fans are up in arms because it only took a third-round pick to bring in Matt Ryan when they traded a second and a fourth for uh, Sam Darnold last year. We could have got Matt Ryan for a third. Well, no, you couldn't. They, they were not going to trade into an NFC South team. And uh, a big part of Sam Darnold's value was his contract and how inexpensive it was relative to a guy like Matt Ryan, who also is about a decade older than Darnold. A little bit more difficult to say that in 280 characters on Twitter. And Twitter is a place where people go to get mad. That's why on this show and, you know, sports talk radio shows in general, where you have a little bit more time to expand, you can get into some of the context why these things make sense. The New Orleans Saints locked up Jameis Winston for two more years, the last of the NFC South notes that we have for you today. Pretty active day in that division. Number one. By the way, Alyssa Kinane. Shouts to Summerfield. Just scored 
her first two points of the game to open up the second half. NC State's up by 15. If she goes scoreless in a half and you're still up by 13 points, good sign. Yeah. Really, I think everyone's looking forward to that possible UConn matchup in the Elite Eight. Uh, the fact that it's not going to be played in Greensboro is right. yeah. just <laughs> ridiculous. Bummer. And number one on the five things of five today, the number one story brought to you by our friends at Precision Garage Tour. Citizen Kane, is it really that good? Well, apparently, this is great. A There's been a negative review a negative critical review added to the Rotten Tomatoes page that already had 115 reviews, all of which were positive. A negative review that said that this movie was not, in fact, an all-time classic. And you might be thinking, Millennials, young people, this is terrible how they can view it this way. Well, no. This is a review that has been unearthed from 80 years ago in the Chicago Tribune where it appears, even back then, there's always that one person in the media that wants to be contrarian. Oh, everybody likes this thing? Well, actually, here's why it wasn't that good. Here's the headline in the Chicago Tribune back in 1942. Citizen Kane fails to impress critic as greatest film ever. Greatest ever filmed. That was the headline that ran back then. Fantastic. Didn't this happen with Paddington at some point, like not that long ago? Well, no, that was the audience score. I don't oh, think okay. the critical score was ever at 100 for okay. Paddington. Yeah. But fantastic that somebody thinks that it's not that good. This is what... This is an excerpt from the story. It's interesting. It's different. In fact, it's bizarre enough to become a museum piece. But it's a sacrifice of simplicity to eccentricity to, to eccentrically rob it of distinction and general entertainment value. Ugh. I'm, I'm picturing this person with like a you know, a robe and a glass of wine. Yes. And the pinky in the in the air. Yes. <laughs> have you seen this movie? I, I actually have not. Oh, of course you have. Right. I, yeah. Don't don't say I actually have not. You you just haven't, and that was the expected it's, it's on the answer. List. It's on the list. Really? Oh. How long is that list? Oh, how much time do you have? I, I got about thirty <laughs> seconds. <laughs> well, Pulp Fiction is still number one. Okay. Yeah, you, you need to see that, and apparently you need to see Forty Year Old Virgin too. Holy bleep. Then again, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, I'm not going to knock you. Oh, you, you didn't see through a long movie from the 40s? I'm not going to knock you for it. This isn't me saying nobody should see it. If you want to, great, and it's influential, and still a good movie. It holds up in a lot of ways. Unless you're this guy from Chicago. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. But that was... I wonder if his opinion changed after that. Maybe he said that wasn't a good take. Robert Ebert even had that happen. Roger Ebert where he would say a movie wasn't that good at the time, and then years later, he'd be like, oh, I re-reviewed it. Oh, I gotcha. Apparently, he didn't like do the right thing when it first happened. And then 10 years later, oh, you know, after second thought. There you go. No, you got to stick to it. Brian Geisiger going to join us in about 15 minutes. No how precise the guys today because I'm valuing my mental health. You know, 
usually lose in that game and hurts my confidence. And we don't want that to start the week, do we? Here's a question I have, though. Is the ACC the best conference in college basketball? I buy that, but maybe not for the reason you're thinking. Next. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2021 Bank of America Corporation. I think he is very insightful. He makes some really great points. He's a man. He's a man. <laughs> the Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. I still like Baylor to win, even though Carolina looked awesome yesterday. Hard to expect that to look as great as it did yesterday, tomorrow. With 3.9 seconds left, McCoy knocks him down. Carolina is going to survive. And the defending national champions, the Baylor Bears, are out in round number two. A one seed is gone in the East. Only two guys on Duke have been to the tournament. So I, I think the pressure of the farewell tour has broken Duke a bit. And I don't see them getting past the first weekend. I really don't. Incredibly spirited effort by Tom Izzo Spartans. This game is officially over. And the music is still playing for Coach K's last dance. And here I thought, with Robert not here, Brian Geisinger joining us on the phone now. We're not going to play out precise the guys. I'm protecting my mentals by not getting beaten down in that game. That if this was going to be a really positive segment for, for yours truly. But I guess not when we've got Sarah McLaughlin keeping me accountable here on a Monday. Brian Geisinger from ACCSports.com here to join us and make our show a lot smarter than it normally is. Whose recovery, desperation effort in the final five minutes impressed you most? Duke or North Carolina's? I think Duke, um, simply by... You, you, can, you, can look, you, can look, you can look at it either way, and we can touch on why UNC's was impressive for obvious or less obvious reasons, too. But I think Duke, considering... The stakes. I think expectations are huge in this type of stuff. And for Duke, you know, it's the last four minutes possibly of these guys ever playing together. Maybe Mike Shefsky's career. They're the favorites heading into this game and going up against trying to, you know, bring it back in the last couple of minutes without AJ Griffin, and who's you know one of their most important offensive players, and going up against a you know a really good Michigan State team that's not, you know. <laughs> The guys in that roster, they've got some future pros there, too. So I would say Duke, but if you want to make the case for UNC, Sands, Brady Mannix, Sands, Caleb Love, and you know, in one of the most chaotic sporting events I've seen in some time, I've got no issues with that, but I'll pick Duke there. The tip-off times have been announced for Duke, Carolina, and for Miami. Spoiler alert, they're all very late. You got Duke, Texas Tech, Thursday night. Interestingly, this is a Thursday game rather than a Friday, so Duke will have four days in between playing in Greenville versus traveling and traveling to San Francisco in order to play this Sweet 16 game. North Carolina, meanwhile, only has to go up to Philadelphia where it will face UCLA six days after the win against Baylor. 
Both those games expected to start around 940. Miami has Iowa State. This game will start approximately at 945 or 950 on Friday. Which team do you think has the best shot at getting to New Orleans out of the three ACC teams? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny. It's like I think, you know, if I were to power rank these teams in terms of, like, how viable I think they are, like, in general, I think I would go Duke 1, UNC 2, Miami 3, with the margins maybe being, like, kind of, you know, relatively tight. That's why, that's what's so great about March, what you're talking about there, though, when you're like, all right, well, who's the best team of the bunch? Probably Duke. Okay, well, who's the best team that they're playing? Well, that's probably exactly. Miami, and then who else is left in their bracket? It's just the beauty of March. The answer yeah, to this the, question the, isn't as simple as who's the best team. Yeah, the the like the randomness factor, and it's like even if you go, it's incredible. And the, the variance of single game elimination, and just not being able to like choose your, you know, they don't like reseed the tournament every round or anything like that. But it's funny. It's like to sort of like draw the curtain back on this. It's like if you go to five thirty eight. It depends on how much you want to buy into like their projection models, but it's like Duke, they're giving Duke a 4% chance of winning the championship, right? The national championship. They're giving UNC a 3% chance of winning the national championship, and they're giving Miami a 1% chance of winning the national title. But according to 538's projection model, Miami is the only team of those three that's favored slightly, mind you, to win their matchup this like the in the round of in, in the Sweet 16, like Miami 538 is giving them a 54% chance to beat Iowa State. They're giving UNC a 46% chance against UCLA, and Duke a 47% chance uh, against Texas Tech and the most efficient defense uh, in the country. So that sort of like provides a little bit of numbers to it. And you know, there's also like we got to wait and make sure that A.J. Griffin's playing for Duke, right? I mean, he, I guess he could have come back in that game against Michigan State, but he did not after injuring his ankle. This is a guy that's had health issues. Uh, I did see on social media today he was, you know, working out with the team for whatever that's worth. And um, UCLA, like, I don't know if we've gotten any word yet on Jaime Jaquez, but he's probably the Bruins' best player. And if he weren't able to go against UNC, that would be a huge – huge I mean I assume he's gonna play but I mean if he's not 100% uh, then that's kind of a big deal too because he's a really important versatile player for them uh, at the forward spot so yeah I'll, again I would take as far as you know the matchup I would want most I'd most prefer, I'd much prefer Iowa State although you know with Tyrese Hunter they're no uh, walk in the park right now either Brian Geisinger with us here he's on Twitter at bgeis underscore bird Read his stuff, accsports.com. Since we're not going to play out precise the guys today, I do have an NBA draft question to get to. But before we get to that, I do think the ACC, and I've been talking with some coaches behind the scenes about this a little bit, I do think the ACC isn't getting the respect it deserves in that you know, the SEC in football, there's this media apparatus that surrounds it where you just, you know, to, to say with any kind of a straight face that the SEC is not the best football conference, people will laugh at you because just look at the titles. They've won eight of the last 12, and history tells you that the SEC is the best conference. And there's a good argument for that, even if a single in a singular year, the ACC 
might have a better season than the SEC like they did when they had Notre Dame in the league a couple of years ago and got two to the college football playoff. Similarly, in a sport that does not have a four-team playoff, which erases a lot of possibility for randomness and who's going to win the title, you're talking about a 68-team single elimination bracket. The ACC's won six of the last dozen national titles, or I guess ACC schools, because technically Louisville was still in the Big East back then, or that might have been year one of the American. Why isn't the ACC viewed with similar respect as, say, the SEC is in football? You know, I think for the most part it is, outside of maybe the last couple, like maybe the last two seasons. Um, I mean, there's a couple theories I could kick around. Like, in general, the, like Jordan Tech won the league last year, right? So, yeah. like, last season may have been a bit of a, a down year for the ACC. Like, they didn't, there was not a lot of postseason success. And this year was a down year, too. Historically, it was. I'll say the Big Ten SEC and Big Ten had a better year. But to suggest that one of those conferences are better than the ACC when the ACC in a historically down year could still send three teams to the Sweet 16, it, it, it's something I find ridiculous when people suggest it. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, but we're also not that far removed from 2019 when the league had three one seeds and ten in, a, in the national champion in Virginia and had ten literally ten guys drafted in the first round, like a third, <laughs> a third of the first round picks that year. And the exact same thing happened in 2017. UNC won the title in 2017. Ten first round picks in the NBA draft from the ACC too. So I think it's that. I mean, you, you mentioned this sort of like media apparatus the SEC has for football. That kind of exists for basketball, too. Like, the SEC Network, all that type of stuff, like, that's in place, and they don't just completely lie dormant uh, once football season ends, you know, necessarily. So there's probably that, too. And then, you know, for, without digging into all of the numbers, like, some of these uh, these these great, you know, resources that, that do a wonderful job measuring uh, various aspects of college basketball, like Ken Pomeroy's website, the Bart Torvik's site, these advanced metric sites, the last couple of years, they have been spitting out that the Big Ten is, is the best league or whatever. You know, the Big maybe it's the Big Twelve as well, which the Big Twelve has been pretty pretty incredible. But um, and I think that that those sites feed a lot of the analysis, whether it be a studio show, writing stuff that you when you and I come on, we're we're, we're referencing these websites too. And if that stuff is, is spitting out that like the Big Ten is the best league, and wow, hey man, the ACC's only got. X number of teams in the Ken Palm top 50, like it just becomes a feedback loop. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that informs the analysis, which then gets spit back out. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, a, that's certainly like a theory of mine. Yes. People take Ken Palm to be gospel versus a tool. And the way you put it is it's a tool. It's not the gospel of, Oh, this is the, this is if you're, if Wake Forest is ranked 33rd in those rankings, they are the 33rd best team in America when we see Miami rank 20 spots lower, even though they beat Wake twice and have a better win than any win they got with their win at Cameron. And, oh, yeah, by the way, they're playing in the Sweet 16. Brian Geisinger joining us here. Draft talk here. So you were kind of alluding to it with the success the ACC's had. How fluid do you think the top of the NBA draft class to be in terms of what people view to be the the rundown of the top picks in this year's draft, the top prospects. Yeah, I think I, I think for, I think honestly, the top four in some order is locked into Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, Paolo Bencaro, 
from Duke, Jabari Smith from Auburn, and Jaden Ivey of Purdue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you were to ask me my order, I would go, you know, Ben Caro and Holmgren, 1A, 1B, Jabari Smith, 3, Jaden Ivey, 4, although Jaden Ivey's coming. If you were asking me to go to 5, I would say Jalen Duran of uh, Memphis, and 6, A.J. Griffin of, of Duke. And then from there, you know, probably, you know, all of a sudden you're start venturing into guys like Johnny Davis from Wisconsin, that type of stuff. I really think the top four to five is is sort of like locked in place. But even with inside of that, I think it's like a little a little fluid. But for me, I feel pretty good about Ben Carroll, Holmgren, 1A, 1B, Smith, 3, Ivy, 4, um, uh, Jalen Duran, 5. Are you reading more doubts of Paulo Boncaro because of how scrutinized he is playing at Duke or of Chet Holmgren because of how unique of a prospect he is? I think both. I mean, I think I definitely catch more Bancaro stuff just by proximity, right? Like, we live here. I cover Duke. Uh, we were at all the games this season. Um, so I think Bancaro, because of that, just plus, like, the media machine that's around Duke. I mean, certainly there's plenty of pub for Gonzaga, but it's just not the same. Their games are on later at night, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but I would also say to that, like, we're just, if you if you really want to, like, knock Paolo Bancaro, like, there's honest stuff to, like, for, like to, like, critique whatever but like we're so overthinking it too it's like this guy is six foot ten 250 pounds he, he can handle the basketball he's an incredible passer he's a team first player like he plays defense he can move he, he gets on the break like he's got a nice face-up mid-range game he can play both sides of the pick and roll like you saw it against michigan state last night and they've done it all season they give him the ball and they run you know they run power forward center pick and roll with ben Carroll and mark williams or ben Carroll and and Theo John. So he's incredible. And then the stuff with, with like my thoughts on Chet Holmgren, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but what I would say is very quickly is Chet Holmgren's not going to make it in the NBA. It's not going to be because of the weight. It's going to be in, in like the fact that he's skinny or whatever. It's going to be because some coach and some franchise doesn't have the vision to actually use this guy correctly and to develop him in the right way. Like don't just stick him in the post. There's a lot of stuff that guy can do on the basketball court. Um, and he's, he's super skilled and is just like a, you know, a freakish defender. So um, I think both of those guys are really, really good pieces. Um, and if you want to knock them, it's because, you know, you're either you're, you're overthinking it with Ben Caro or with, uh, with Holmgren. I don't think you're being open-minded enough to sort of realize what exactly that guy's capable of doing on the court. BG, next week we'll have some out precise the guys questions for you. In the meantime, enjoy the hoop and rest up because it's going to be some late nights late in the week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, guys, have a good week. Uh, Enjoy the game. He's on Twitter at bguys underscore bird, and read his stuff, accsports.com. Going throughout your workout, all without sugar or herbal stimulants. They're just what you need when you don't have time for tired. Plus, they're available in tons of delicious flavors. Ready to do this? Let's go. 5-Hour Energy for every workout. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. And now, The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. David Hale from ESPN joins the show now. And David, you were in Greenville yesterday to watch Duke win that game against Michigan State. Saw you at Cameron for the Duke Carolina game where 
things went south for Duke down the stretch. I think you were in Brooklyn as well when Duke let things slip away late against Virginia Tech. In both those instances, it seemed like to me that the the pressure, the gravity of what's surrounding this Duke team and Coach K's final season, it became a bit much. They played tight, and not only did they lose, they lost those games by double digits. And I couldn't help to think, boy, did the script of that Duke-Carolina game look similar to what we saw yesterday, where Michigan State goes up five, and it just looks like Duke's going to fold, especially with A.J. Griffin being on the bench. So given how the final five minutes actually did play out, how surprised were you to see Duke pick up the pieces the way they did? I mean, pretty shocked, to be honest with you. Uh, because you, to your point, this is so much of what the season looked like. The the blown leads late, which were a consistent problem. The just burden of carrying around Krzyzewski's legacy on a team of mostly young guys who didn't ask to be in this situation. Uh, that was a an ongoing issue. Um, and then you have this, you know, the one thing that they said sort of at the start of the tournament was like, hey, this could be our last game too at any time. And so we're really, you know, we're playing for us. And yet here you go with this Krzyzewski and Izzo matchup that became, you know, the entire narrative around the game and took on a life of its own. Everything was kind of going against Duke, which sounds stupid to say because this is a team with probably five first-round draft picks on it that's obviously very talented and certainly was more talented than Michigan state, but, but it is a team that has dealt with a psychological burden all year um, and really had to grow up at the toughest possible time. And, and if you looked at the body language of those guys, when they were down five and, and not just the players, I mean, even Krzyzewski, it you could look at him and get the feeling like he had an idea that maybe this was the end of the run. And then they turned it all around and, it, you know, really all of them played a part, but it would be impossible to not single out Jeremy Roach for what he did. That was just an incredible five minutes of basketball from the guy who has probably been the most unsung hero on that team all season. It was a super fun game to watch the whole time, a game that was played at an incredibly high level by both sides. Um, probably a dozen different moments where you thought, Oh boy, this is, this is unreal. And it came down to an ending that in so many ways um, kind of turned the narrative of Duke on its head, which was probably a thing that they really needed to do. David Hale with us here, his story on the front of ESPN.com this morning, he was in Greenville watching Duke win against Michigan state yesterday. If it's late in the game, it's tied final 30 seconds of the game. You think Jeremy Roach has played himself into the spot where he's the guy you expect to get the ball, say, in the Sweet 16? Well, I mean, it was such a good example of what I think this particular Duke team is and maybe wasn't in the past. You know, those years of um, Zion and Bagley and, and those guys, I mean, they've had stars before. And there was often sort of a uh, how do the stars cooperate together and everyone sort of deferred to them. This is a team this year that I think, you know, Ben Caro's a, a star. Mark Williams is a star. Um, Trevor Keel is going to be a first-round draft pick and I think certainly has had moments where he looked like a star. Um, there are still stars on this team, but I feel like 
the pieces match up better than they have in a long while. And that doesn't make them flawless. I think you can watch them play defense and still see some obvious flaws. And before A.J. Griffin got hurt in that game, you saw multiple times where, where uh, Paolo Bencaro was very upset with him for being out of position and, and turning the ball over. Um, but what you see is a team that I think really is a team, not a collection of future draft picks. And Jeremy Roach is the perfect example of that team guy mentality. I mean, he stepped in when Keels got hurt early in the season and was just fantastic. I mean, not star-strikingly fantastic, but tons of assists and no turnovers, which is what you needed. And, you know, even Krzyzewski said at the end of that game yesterday that the drives to the basket that Roach did again and again down the stretch there were some of the best drives to the basket he has seen in 42 years on Duke's sideline. And I don't think he's exaggerating that. It was pure confidence from the guy who has probably gotten the least amount of attention uh, among the six guys who play a good bit there. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think he has certainly earned the opportunity to be that guy. But, but the beauty of this lineup is I think they have lots of that guys, and I think they do work well together. I mean, you saw Bancaro, who admittedly at times this year has felt like his, he's been a little reluctant to truly embrace his talent and try to take over a game. But he really did his damnedest to do that down the stretch. And you saw a guy like Mark Williams, who the first half of that game was dominant in the paint. Michigan State really had no answers for him once he got the ball. And he didn't even take a shot the final 14 minutes of that game wow. because he was so busy playing defense. It, it was a, a group that played really well together. And the fact that Jeremy Roach could be the star at the end of it speaks a lot to how much that group was willing to, to, to not – feel like one person had to do the job that they could really sort of work in each person play their role. It was the greatest collective display of resolve that I've seen from this Duke team all year long. David Hale with us from ESPN. You were in the room and you saw how Kay got emotional talking about how these guys played together and how it wasn't just one guy. Uh, you probably were keeping a close eye on the emotions that Kay showed on the sidelines during the game since you were in the building. And I've worked to this theory after listening to what Kay said after the game. It seems like to me, March was a big part of the reason why Kay wouldn't have thought to hang it up last year. Maybe some of it was he knew he was sitting on a monster and knew that they had these great this great roster coming back and he'd have a shot to win a title. But maybe it was as simple as, well, I didn't get a chance to play in the tournament that's defined my career last year. And I didn't get that in 2020, but 2019 was the last time you know I was in the tournament. That's three years ago. Now he's having those moments again. So I think I don't think it was coach speak when he was talking about wow, what a moment for a 75 year old to experience. I think a big part of the reason why he wanted to come back was so he could at least experience that one more time. What do you think? I 100% agree with you. You know I. I wrote in my column sort of the end of it was that he, he'd talked at the beginning that when they were down five, his team had looked young and he wanted to see if they could grow up in that moment. And clearly they did, but in doing so it kind of, I think made Krzyzewski feel young again for a minute, for a minute or two, you know, I mean, it's, this is a guy who has seen and done everything in college basketball. And I think you can rightfully be critical of some of the ways he has handled this year and the pressure that that has put on his team. And I think that they had his back in that moment. I think they went out and played 
um, five minutes of basketball that ranks up there among the most remarkable and memorable five minutes of basketball that, that Krzyzewski has seen his players play in his career. I think that it, it absolutely belongs in that pantheon of truly memorable Duke moments during these last 42 years. And if you're a guy who is uh, somewhere between his last game and his fourth to last game, to think that you have one of those moments still in there is sort of incredible when you, when you take a step back and realize, like, here we are scripting the last chapter of this epic novel, and it still had some surprises in there. That, I mean, as a, whether you're a Duke fan or Krzyzewski fan or not, you have to look at it as a sports fan and say, isn't that kind of great that, mm. that those moments can still live up to what we think they might be? Spring practice, got to at least throw this your way. How tough of a call do you think it's going to be picking a champion for the Atlantic Division? Or do you already have a good idea who you're going to be picking in June? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I ran into Jim Phillips at the before the Duke game, and, and we were chatting for a little bit on the sideline there. Oh, yeah? This is exactly what we were talking Did about. Did Greensboro come up? Before hey, what's is- up? Hey, what, what's what's going on with Greensboro? Just just wondering. Just interesting. Well, okay, we didn't get in. I didn't pressure him on that conversation. Okay, just checking. Just checking. Um, I, you, know, you know how relationships are, Josh. The harder you uh, try to cling to them, the more they want to uh, run free. So okay. I, I, of course, had to, to give him a buffer on that. No, <laughs> so Jim Phillips has got Wake West. Forest, right? That's, that's what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it, look, that division, um, and, and <laughs> I am always, I feel like you have to put the big caveat out there because we've all seen enough ACC Atlantic. We've seen what happens when you put too much uh, hype on to, to NC State over the years. And uh, if you if you think Florida State's back, well, yeah, we've seen how that story can go too. But it is a really potentially good division. I, look, if you're asking me to pick a team today, I will still probably pick Clemson because I'm, a, you know, trained to to believe that. You know, you see the sun come up every day, you start to expect it. One day it doesn't come up, you maybe expect it a little less, but you're still figuring the next day it's going to come up. Uh, and that's kind of where I am on Clemson. I think that that they're still the most talented team, but Wake brings back pretty much everybody, and I think made a great hire at the at defensive coordinator. NC State has so many pieces coming off of a nine parentheses, 10 with an asterisk win season. Um, you know, Florida State, I think, made real strides last year and and should be better this year. Syracuse has maybe one of the best, if not the best running backs in the country. Boston College, if they have a healthy quarterback, we've seen what they can do. Louisville has had the worst luck in the country pretty much over the last two years, but still has uh, one of the most electrifying players in the country and Malik Cunningham. There's just a lot in that conference in that division to say, like, I, you know, I don't know. And, and that's the thing, you know, the other thing is I think Clemson is going to be better, but Clemson in some ways got pretty lucky last year. They won a lot more of those close games than they lost. And a lot better is, is only uh, within the context of last year. If they're better, but everybody else is better too, we're right back to where we started from. So uh, to me, it is very much wide open. If you're asking me to pick, I'm still probably picking Clemson. I know that's the boring answer, but I got a lot of time to come up with an explanation for a better answer down the road. You headed to San Fran? I am not. I uh, I actually am, am back to doing some football stuff, so I'm off on a on a football related 
uh, road trip after Uh-oh. this. I would love to be going to San Fran okay. because it is my favorite city in the country to visit. You couldn't pay me enough to live there, but it is my favorite city in the country to visit. Let's talk football sometime soon, buddy. Thanks for doing this. All right, man. Good to talk to you. There you go. It's David Hale joining us from ESPN on Twitter. One of the best Twitter handles you'll find out there. At curious about, and he's cool. You're on the drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Brian Geisiger gonna join us in 15 minutes. Our resident hoops expert gonna make the show a lot smarter than it currently is. One thing I want to discuss with him the ACC, it's the best college basketball conference, right? Like the ACC is to college basketball what the SEC has become in football. That would be my argument. That isn't to say in a given year, another power conference can't have a better year than the ACC, just like the SEC a couple years ago. Remember when Notre Dame joined the ACC and the ACC, not the SEC, got two teams into the college football playoff? Well, the ACC had a better season than the SEC. But when it mattered most, the cream rise to the top, and Alabama won the national title that year. The ACC, in a historically down year, five teams, and it is down. This is not me saying that the ACC has not had a down year, because I think to suggest that would be ignoring metrics that you should look at as a tool, not the rule. You shouldn't go to Ken Palm and say, well, here are the rankings. So these are the best teams in America because Kim Pomeroy says so. If you were to look at that today, you would find that Miami is apparently 20 spots worse than Wake Forest is. Even though Miami beat Wake Forest twice and won at Duke and is playing in the Sweet 16 while Wake Forest is in the final eight of the quarterfinals. You know, they're in the quarterfinals of the NIT. All due respect to Wake Forest, when you get beat twice by that team, and that team is a better win than any win you've got, that team's better than you are, especially if they're in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. So do not use Kentom or some of these other metrics as the rule. Use them as a tool. The ACC did not have as good of a year as the SEC or the Big 12 or the Big 10, but they are the best basketball conference because – even while they haven't had the greatest year, they still are able to send three teams to the Sweet 16. Tied for more than anybody else, or I guess it's uh, nobody else has more than the ACC sent to the Big 12, or uh, sent to the uh, Sweet 16 this season. Nobody else. No other conference is capable of that. When other conferences have bad years, they, they probably don't even get five teams. And those five teams are often not the teams that are going to the Final Four or even go into the Sweet 16. That's what happens with other conferences have down years. The ACC's having a down year, and they've sent three to the Sweet 16. Could have been four. Notre Dame played a really close game with Texas Tech. The ACC is the best conference in college basketball. Just like I wouldn't have suggested the ACC's a better football conference than the SEC because it had one better year than they had a couple years ago, I would not suggest in any context there is a conference better than the ACC is right now in basketball. Because, let's look at the recent history. Not all the way back to 1953, because I know people get annoyed when you do that. Just because you're the greatest historically doesn't mean you could be the greatest 
forever. But let's just go recency here. The last normal tournament that we've had. Last year, they everybody had them in Indianapolis. It was weird. Games were getting canceled. You know, that was not a normal tournament last year. 2020, obviously didn't have a tournament. The last time we had a tournament, the ACC had three number one seeds and the national champ. This is different than college football. College football, you have a final four. To win a title, you have to win two games. Beat a team in the in the court, uh, semifinal and then win the national championship game. The SEC has won eight of the last 12. They're the best conference in college football. In a more random 68-team tournament that is single elimination, the ACC has won six of the last 12 national championships. That is remarkable. ACC schools have won six of the last 12. Duke twice, Carolina twice, Louisville did so, and Virginia. Six of the last 12. The conversation should be over at that point. Nobody else should really be trying to debate this. No. The analytics made it look a lot worse than what it actually was, and it was based on the ACC Big Ten Challenge, which, by the way, the Big Ten won 8-6. to six. It's not like the ACC got waxed. And the ACC was transitioning with a bunch of new players in the transfer portal and figuring things out. And with a new coach at North Carolina, many of these teams were trying to figure out their rosters. And when they did, the ACC performed a lot better. So judging things in November doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense and having that carry so much weight when we get to February and March doesn't seem like it makes sense either. I, I also want to mention that the Mountain West, which is a conference that a lot of people, I think, rated higher than it has been in oh, the past. Folks oh, said, oh, and four. Yeah, folks yeah. said in January, with a straight face, the Mountain West was better than the ACC. Yeah, I people never said bought that. that. Yeah, <laughs> over the last five years, six years, I don't know what the stretch is, but their last... 12 games they've had in the first round, they are 1-11. Their commissioner's out here saying, the next step for us, we need to win games. Well, no bleep. 0-4 this year. All those folks saying, one bid ACC, one bid ACC. Where are the folks doing the hashtag, let's make the Mountain West a one-bid league again? Where are those folks? And fun fact, three of those four Mountain West teams were the higher seed in their yeah, games. Yeah, of course they were. Now do how many times the ACC was the lower seed? You know, with Miami and North Carolina and Notre Dame in the play-in game. Hmm. Best conference of college basketball. I don't even think it's that particularly close. I don't. The Panthers, they've been busy. As we've been talking about, Matt Rule, Scott Fitterer, Ben McAdoo, they were all at Kenny Pickett's Pro Day earlier. And there's rumors the Panthers have expressed interest in Baker Mayfield, which I'm in favor of. In fact, I've been in favor of a lot of things the Panthers have done lately. It's been a quiet but really good weekend for them in free agency. Let's just go down the list of the things they did. They continued to bolster the O-line. They added Austin Corbett, the Rams guard from the Super Bowl team, Bradley Bozeman, a center that if Matt Paradis isn't able to go, he's your guy from the Ravens and a capable starter there. He could also play 
at either of the guard spots. Your interior O-line's good. Speaking of things in the middle, the middle of your defense is stronger. You add a defensive tackle. You add Corey Littleton in the linebacking core. You add in the secondary, Xavier Woods, the former Cowboy safety. That's an upgrade over former Wolfpacker Justin Burris. Deshaun Watson went to the Cleveland Browns rather than Atlanta and New Orleans in your backyard in the NFC South. Matt Ryan's no longer in the division, so you might be worrying about Marcus Mariota instead of Matt Ryan yelling at you to get off my bleeping field. But wait, there's more. DJ Moore extended him, one of the 10 best wide receivers in the NFL. That kind of went under the radar. Uh, you know, and I think it was a competitive rate that they got DJ Moore to agree to. Dante Jackson, they'll have speed on the, in the secondary. Hopefully J.C. Horn's back and healthy. You sign an elite punter in Johnny Hacker. Deontay Freeman, he could play. You need someone to spell Christian McCaffrey from time to time. You get him at running back. I, I thought they had a really good weekend. I really do. The Panthers got better in the last week. They were going to spend a lot of that salary cap with Deshaun Watson, and since Deshaun's not coming to Charlotte, well, you have money to blow on other things that can make your team better right now, and it seems Carolina's committed to doing that. Which ACC team has the best shot at getting to the Final Four? So we talked about the three that are there, Miami, Duke, North Carolina. Who has the best shot at getting to the Final Four? We'll ask our resident hoops nerd, BG, next. <laughs> 